2: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSC. Welcome to the
0: New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Folklore, which is one of the many podcast channels that you can find on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Hopkin. I'm one of the hosts of the New Books in Folklore channel. And today, my guest is William G. Pooley. Will, as I'm going to call him, is a folklore-friendly historian based at the University of Bristol in the UK. He'll be talking about his first book, Body and Tradition in 19th Century France, Félix Arnaudin and the Moorlands of Gascony, 1870 to 1914. Will Pooley, welcome to the New Books in Folklore podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. And did I say that title right, or at least the words in it that are foreign to me, Félix Arnaudin? yeah that's that's about right yeah okay, great so i'm going to start before we get to the book by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and perhaps how you came to be interested in folklore
2: yeah that, I mean that's a really good question um so i I started out um, being interested in history um, and uh well actually so I was kind of interested in those kinds of history. Um, of people who don't necessarily have access to writing, the kinds of people that it's harder to write history about um in general and it was actually your brother Rachel David Hopkin, who I think you've interviewed on this series before, and he was the one he was the one who introduced me to kind of folklore as a, as a topic that could be of interest from uh, from that point of view so when I was a master's student um, a long time ago it feels now he he suggested to me that I do a project based on some folklore and i I did that for my master's um, and then on the back of that, I then ended up going to America to study folklore um, at Utah State for a year um, on the Folklore Fellowship. And then I came back and I did a PhD with with David Hopkin
1: on folklore and history. I love it. that My brother is corrupting the historian, the world of historians, to, to, to come to their senses and find folklore fascinating, which it sounds like you did.
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think for me it offered... Um, some of the things that I'm interested in in history in terms of, you know, real people kind of getting to grips with the experiences of ordinary people in the past, their emotions, their relationships to other people. Um, and that kind of folklore material was definitely, it was it was the best stuff that I'd ever done as a historian. So I've stuck with it.
1: So this book is based upon the collection of a folklorist. Can you tell us about who Felix Arnodan was and why his collection was of interest to you?
2: Sure, so when I started out, I was originally going to do a project which was about three folklorists who so were all from the same region, kind of big region of of southwestern France um, and there's, there's a kind of, that's a linguistic region there, so um, people in general who speak the Gascon dialects of of the Occ ok language um, and so Arnadin was one of the three, and the other two i was I've worked a bit on Jean francois bladet and um, another interesting anarchist. Adjacent folklorist called Antonin Peerbosk, all collecting folklore across kind of the 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, and what actually happened was that w- when I first went to look in the archives of the Arnadan materials, I realized that I was never going to have time to do anything beyond just getting to grips with Arnadan's collection. Um, he was a, a really meticulous, very thorough folklorist. He collected... Um, Hundreds of songs, uh, you know, a large number of um, oral narratives, depending on how you count them in the manuscripts, because, of course, some of them are, are very fragmentary. And, um, and he also collected a lot of dialect speech. Uh, there are kilometers of microfilms of his original manuscripts in the archives in southwestern France. Um, but the kind of the tragic thing about him, I guess, is that although he did all of this folklore collecting between about 1870 and 1914, he really didn't publish much of it. So, during his own lifetime, he hardly saw any of it in print um, you know he was he was in a sense he was a perfectionist and he just never never managed to finalize those publications, which is something that I definitely try not to identify with her too much.
1: you write about him in, most in the in the first chapter, and he sounds like quite a poignant character. Can you tell us a little bit more about his background and his personal life so he's a very he
2: you know, I didn't put this in the book, but I think it's safe to say it here on the podcast. I have very ambivalent feelings about him because, in a sense, he provided all this material, which has then been the basis for the entire book, and it's an incredible, um, incredible archive of material. But I wouldn't say that I am particularly fond of him, as you know, his personality. He um, he was very he he felt like a failure in life. Um, and he had very he had a very strange relationship to his kind of family and to his local community and society because he was the kind of he was the son of the of the mayor of the town where he lived and he was related to various other kind of local dignitaries so he was you know when he was young uh, a teenager and in his twenties people assumed that he would maybe go into the law or he'd he'd go into politics like other family members had or he'd make money like a lot of other people did um, through local business um, and the expansion of the forest on in the region but he didn't um and he kind of he never he spent his entire life doing this kind of folklore collecting and photography and kind of by the time he died he'd spent all of his family money and he'd never he'd never kind of left the region he never kind of came to terms with what it was that he thought he was doing in a sense and he also has this very he's got this very problematic um relationship with uh, the family maid, which is it's a complicated story in a sense because in one sense it's not complicated he was in his 30s and she was 14 when they first um, started their relationship and then his family found out and when the family found out she was sent away and then she she clearly tried to kill herself and then at some point his, after his mother died she came back to live with him and they lived together until she died um kind of 20 or 30 years later so there's there's a lot going on i think with that particular relationship in particular and and in the in the materials that he left as well it's clear that he had relationships with other women um i don't it's impossible to identify them because he anonymized them um, in the manuscripts but there's definitely a lot of different things going on in his personality and not all of it is very yeah very endearing to be honest
1: Right. Um, And so how did he go about collecting this folklore collection that you built your dissertation and now this book upon?
2: So um, Arnadan quite clearly fits into this kind of like newer school of folklorists um, in France and I think across Europe there are similar patterns, but he's in this kind of newer school in the later 19th century who are really serious about kind of ethnographic methods. Um, And so the kind of things that involves he he really wants to make sure that he's writing down oral traditions as close to, to the way that they're spoken as possible or as close to the way they're sung. Um, so that means for him capturing dialect, which he's very interested in. And it also means um, uh, recording as many variants as possible, especially with the songs. So he would produce these wonderful um, note. He's got these big notebooks and on the, on the page, it would have a version of the song collected from one person and then all over the rest of the page, he's noted how different singers um, sang different versions. So if they were very similar, he wouldn't write out the whole song. He'd just say, you know, the same as this other version, except they've changed the words here and they've changed the words there. So he was very meticulous like that. And he was also meticulous in the sense of wanting to preserve the identities of his singers and storytellers and other informants. Although he had some ambivalences around whose identities he was willing to uh to preserve he did in general want to kind of make it clear who he'd collected the material from um so there so and then i think the other important thing to know about him is that he's he is a native um speaker of the gascon dialect that he collected uh most of his material um most of the folk he collected was in this gascon dialect so he was a native speaker he was a kind of native son if you like of the region and he felt very fiercely um defensive and proud of that local culture and it was definitely a culture that he was himself um, an active participant in you know his family although they were kind of a, a local dignitaries they they'd risen quite quickly from the local artisan class if you like and he he didn't feel distant i suppose from a lot of the people that acted as informants even if perhaps he was more distant than he was wanting to recognize
1: Right. So this region of France, Gascony, is is a really important character in the book. Can you tell me about the region and why you found it so fascinating?
2: So, yeah. Um,
1: so Gascony,
2: is, Gascony covers quite a large part of southwestern France and probably anyone out there who's um, ever been there as a tourist might associate it with kind of foie gras. There's a lot of um, rich duck-based food um, uh, and those kind of things, and wine as well. There's some wonderful wine. But um, in, in particular, this one sub-region of that larger region where Arnaudan collected folklore, um, it's called the Moorlands of Gascony or the L'Anne de Gascony in, in French. Um, and they, they were Moorlands at the start of the 19th century. But by the period that Arnaudan was collecting this folklore, um, most of the Moorland had been forested um and this was a really, really big change in the region. The forest which was planted on those moorlands is still the largest man-made forest in Europe. Um and it was uh that forest was in a sense imposed onto the region by the national government. They passed a national law um encouraging local communities to sell off the communally held moorlands uh to private investors, and then private investors are expected to drain and plant the moorlands with pine trees because from the point of view of the national government certainly and, and reformers have been saying this for a long time the region was very sterile um, it's extremely hard to grow food there um, most of the people who live there subsisted by kind of combining uh, sheep farming with hunting and fishing and some pine farming um, and the government felt that turning the whole region into pine trees was a much better use of the region because um, the, the trees could be um, sapped for resin and that that resin had a lot of uses uh, in early industry, especially before the advent of plastics. Um, The resin could be made into various products.
1: Am I right in understanding that this area was seen as kind of rather backwards in needs of intervention by more educated, more sophisticated peoples? That's kind of the impression I got.
2: Yeah, I mean, sorry, I should have talked about that. That's the, I suppose that's the really interesting stuff is that, yeah, outside visitors talk about the region before forestation as being this—it's like the Sahara Desert within France, or it's like you know they—they um, basically they compare it to um, foreign territories that have been colonized, and the people who live there are more savage than you know than any of the populations of, of various parts of the world that France had in fact colonized. Um, and there's a, there is definitely a romanticism and a kind of, you know, a romanticism of misery and a kind of an exaggeration perhaps of how extreme that situation was, but that's certainly how it was seen by outsiders.
1: I was wondering if there was kind of parallel between there and the Appalachian, the Southern Appalachian mountains in the United States. Is that something you can comment on or is that outside of your area? Oh, I definitely think so. I
2: mean, you know, there are, there are obvious differences in terms of the histories of those populations but I think in terms of the way that the region is both presented as being very primitive and you know almost barbaric but also kind of culturally pure and very important for how people think about the preservation of traditions so it's often mentioned actually in the 19th century as being one of the regions that preserves witchcraft traditions longer than other regions which Actually, I don't think it's true based on subsequent research, but that's, you know, that's how it's seen by outsiders um, as a kind of fascinating and interesting cultural place.
1: Arnaudin was collecting between 1870 and 1914. Who was he collecting from and what kinds of things did he focus on in his collections? This is the subject of one of your chapters. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, in, um, in Chapter 3, I talk a lot
2: about who these informants that Arnaudin collected, folklore, from actually were, um, because there's a, for me, there's an interesting question about how honest folklorists in the 19th century were about who they were collecting folklore from. And there's, you know, actually there's been some very interesting work on the English folklorists um, from this point of view, because Arnadan much, again, much like English folklorist tends to emphasize that his folklore informants um, are old he tends to emphasize that they do traditional occupations, So for him, it's really important that he, you know, he's saying that he collects a lot of material from shepherds because the shepherds are the, you know, that, that's the traditional occupation of people living in the region. Um, and he's also actually very interested in emphasizing uh, the importance of women to uh, some forms of his folklore collecting, so particularly uh, singing. Uh now, I was skeptical of that, and I thought that what I would do is I would go and do some research in the archives and see if that was true. Uh, and what I didn't really think about <laughs> carefully enough in advance, looking back in retrospect, is how difficult it is to do that kind of research. I spent a lot of time looking at birth certificates, marriage certificates, death certificates, um, wills, you know, military records, marriage contracts, all these kind of things, and trying to piece together what Arnodam said in his manuscripts about these people with what I could prove based on other sources. Wow. That's a lot of research. (laughs) It did. Yeah. I think I would, I I've met other people who said, Oh, I'd like to try this with. And I normally say to them, it's, it's maybe more work than it's worth. Sometimes I think perhaps what I wish I'd done was focused on the individuals I thought were really important and done that work for them.
1: You said there were 750, you think there were 759 informants in the manuscripts. You weren't looking up the births and deaths of everyone, were you? Yeah. Oh I my did. God.
2: <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I, so I was looking for 750, I 750 possible different individuals because uh, sometimes Arnadan used different names for the same person. Because sometimes he might refer to them a woman, especially by her married name or by her maiden name. Um, and sometimes he used nicknames. So it's, it can be hard to know all 750 different people. But I and I didn't certainly I didn't manage to find all 750. I think in the end, I only positively identified about 400. But it was still. Um, yeah, that was a lot of work. I think really complicated also by the language question, because most of those people speak Gascon as their first language. A lot of them, I mean, almost all of them, I think, would have been fluent in French as well. But the fact that Gascon was the language of everyday life means that they don't use French names in everyday life. So they might be christened Jean-Francois, but the next, when they get married, their name on the marriage certificate is down as Pierre, because no one ever calls them Jean-Francois, because that's not a Gascon right. name. They've probably got a Gascon nickname or or a Gascon alternative.
1: Oh, so was part of this that you had to learn a new dialect as well?
2: Yeah, I think, so yes, I, I, I learned Gascon by reading Anadan's um, writings. So I didn't, it's not like I actually undertook proper language classes. Um, and the, but I mean, I think it probably wouldn't have helped me to do that anyway, because he wrote a very idiosyncratic version of the language because he was the first person actually to try and write it, uh, to write that modern dialect of Gascon, I should say. There are obviously, um, there are medieval, um, writings in Gascon as well. And there are, and there are modern Gascons now as well, but when he was doing this, he, he tried to codify his local dialect. Um, so it'd be very hard to read based on learning modern Gascon.
1: How similar is it to, uh, the French that you would learn in a British or an American classroom?
2: It's, it is similar and um, you can certainly, I mean, I think the thing I would say is it's as similar to French as it is to Spanish and maybe Italian, you know, those, those romance languages, which are, there's a lot of vocabulary overlap. And once you, once you know the rules of kind of, there are some very obvious rules. So like B's become V's much like with Spanish. Um, and once you begin to recognize that it's easier to, um, yeah, you can basically just kind of, you, one could even write a small piece of software that basically just took some bits of Gascon and automatically, tran- automatically changed certain letters, and you'd have something that a French
0: speaker would recognize. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com.
1: So your first three chapters in the book are setting up the context and the main characters and the region and the informants. And then you move on to the body of the text, which no pun intended is about the body. Um, So what made you interested in the body and how has that been viewed in history? In the introduction, you talk about a modernizing of the body. Can you tell us a little bit about the whole kind of approach to the body in the works of historians and the attitudes of historians?
2: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, one of the things that I've always been really interested in and continue to be interested in is this, you know, I think there's this basic point, which a lot of historians would, would now agree with, which is that even the most fundamental um, elements of kind of like human experience um, are historically changeable. So I was really interested in the fact that where maybe 20, 30 years ago, historians who are writing about the body, um, they might write about how representations of the body have changed over time so that bodies are depicted in different ways, you know, through art or through literature or something like that. Um, But I'm much more interested in the idea that, bodies might literally be different so people might feel differently they might hold their bodies differently they might use them differently um and they might they might understand them in such fundamentally different ways that calling that a kind of representation is not doesn't really do justice to the kind of radical difference of of how they're experiencing their bodies so that's so that's very much where i was coming from as a historian and i think the book is is an attempt to to show some of that working, which is very, you know, it's very hard to do. You have to somehow balance between uh, telling the stories of individual people and explaining how they relate to their bodies. And then at the same time, draw back, I think, to show what that's got to do with a general sense of, yeah, this process, which you've referred to that that some historians have talked about as the modernization of the body, the idea that over the last few hundred years or however many however you know whatever chronology you want to choose that the body has somehow become sealed in that we've become a modern self that's divided from the cosmos that we um you know that we think in these very cartesian terms that separate out a mind from a body and maybe you know a soul from the mind from the body um which is a it's a narrative that i have to say that i'm skeptical of um and i think that one of the things that makes folklore so fascinating is that it's got this richness of material to suggest other stories other narratives of how people's relationships
1: to the body have changed. So when you came to this collection, actually, just before I get to that, how did you come to this collection? Is it in a building in one place or is it online or how did you access the materials?
2: Oh, that's, so that's a good question. So the the materials are actually available in several different forms. Um, Before I started the PhD, um, just a few years before they finished the complete works um, of Arnadan's um, writings, but I think you know. So the thing to say. So this complete works was based on his manuscripts, and those manuscripts are all housed in the same archives, which are in Mont de Marsan in southwestern France. And that was actually those manuscripts were some of them were dispersed on his death. The stories that actually they were kind of some of them were thrown away, and they were rescued from the from the bin by. By people who knew that their value. Um, but they were reassembled over the 20th century. And yeah, they're all held in mont de marsan And then in the late 20th century and into the 21st century, there was this big project which brought together a whole team of scholars to edit those manuscripts and make them into an edited collection. But of course they couldn't they couldn't include everything. And and in particular, you know, I think there's a reluctance to include stuff that was fragmentary. Um, so it was much easier to include the narratives that were whole narratives that Arnadan had already written up ready for publication, for instance, um, or the same with the songs, where he'd really laboriously laid out how how he thought the songs should be presented. He just hadn't finished um getting them to publication. Whereas there are some other materials, especially kind of basically short ethnographic notes, that it was very hard for the edited for the for the editors of that edited collection to put into the Put into the editor collection, yeah
1: although I think you find some of those kind of um, more scrappy parts of his collection kind of interesting precisely because they weren't so polished, is that right?
2: Oh absolutely I think um you know I think one of the things that is interesting about manuscript folklore collections compared to published collections is that very often you do get this sense of materials that are more i think dialogic, so those scraps are very often because they're taken from conversation. So you get more of a sense of where these things are happening. You also get a sense, I think, of those ambiguities. So the scrappy materials are often the things where people are unsure or they're, yeah, again, they're involved in conversation. And that's, you know, for the topics I've been talking about where you're trying to think about, you know, what do people think about their own bodies? That can be much more valuable, I think, than a really polished performance story.
1: Right. Actually, uh, as a further aside, one of the things I I liked in this book was how you're pointing out his frustration with some of his informants. It's like this woman seemed to change the whole song on a whim and last moment. <laughs> it's like,
2: yeah, and it's really interesting as well because I think you know I'm I'm grateful I am very grateful to Arna Dan when he writes things like that because if he didn't include those notes about his own opinion in the manuscripts, then he you know his role in shaping them would be harder. I think, to disentangle. And it's so great that he's like, oh, I don't like it when they do this or, or you know, he, he clearly disapproves of some of the material and he records that sometimes. And that's really helpful to me because it, it shows me exactly how, yeah, how he's shaping it as a folklorist.
1: So as you came to this collection, how did you start pulling out bits specifically concerned with the body? Were you literally looking for words related to the body? Um,
2: I, th- I think, to be honest, I, I took I took the approach of just trying to look at everything and decide what i thought was most interesting um i think i knew from the start that i wanted to focus on individual performers in some of the chapters so i was on the lookout for for performers who i found the most interesting which is how i've ended up with most of the individuals who, who have a whole chapter each um but in terms of looking for the body stuff yeah it was really a process of i was going through all of the so I went through everything I think they have um, from Arnadan's manuscripts and looking for things that I thought would help me to piece something together about this.
1: And so what kinds of themes related to the body emerged during this research?
2: So I think there's a lot of stuff in the book about work, um, which I don't think should be surprising. Almost all of the informants that Arnadan really valued were manual workers Um, whether that's kind of agricultural work. A lot of the agricultural work actually in the region is done by women. um, And, you know, all women do huge amounts of domestic work or did huge amounts of domestic work at the time. Um, So work is perhaps the dominant theme. And in a sense, it's it's, it's so loud that it kind of, sometimes it drowns everything else out. um, And sometimes it can be about looking for the other things that people talk about. I think the other obvious theme which I dwell a lot on in the book is sexuality, um, and I, I there's a lot of material in the archive about how people talked about their sexual bodies and how they negotiated that, um, and it's, yeah, I think sometimes it's, it's a lot more direct than people who are unfamiliar with manuscript folklore
1: collections might assume for this period. Um, yeah, I was a bit surprised by it. We'll come to that in a little bit because you focus. On... <laughs> but I like the way that you describe the approach to the body and this folklore. So you call it puantalist, I think, and it's sort of legs, feet, teeth, lips, eyes, and asses.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I and mean, so yeah, so that's the other thing. And the, I, I wanted to give this picture of you know what what body do you get if you just look um, look for the words? What body parts do people focus on? And like you say, it's a very it's a strangely puantalist kind of. Body. It's also very focused on the lower half of the body, um, which I think is really interesting and important. You know, there's a lot of stuff about legs and a lot of stuff about buttocks, um, which I, you know, there's, I think there's a lot to unpick there, which can be quite hard without being able to talk to these people directly. What do you mean when you're constantly <laughs> talking about this?
1: <laughs> and some of it is just about how exhausted people are. But you also say that although there's little discussion of beauty, beauty of legs does come up.
2: Yeah. So I think the focus on the legs is so extreme that even, you know, it's not just about work. It's legs seem to be the kind of most prized body part. I think there's really a sense that everyone feels their body is kind of pulled down to the ground by gravity. So I talk about this quite a lot. You know, it's stooped, um, it's it's bent over like a sickle. um, Yeah, exhausted from work. And that's actually, you know, there is a long um, prehistory, if you like, of that attitude to the body some really nice work on from early modern historians on the fact that being being able to stand upright is really a kind of, you know, it's an elite privilege and people who do a lot of manual labour, they're constantly feeling like their gravity is, their, is, is the main kind of dominating force in their life.
1: That brings us nicely on to chapter five, which is headed monstrous bodies. Tell us about this chapter, which is centred on a werewolf legend by a woman called Mary Shumbuzats. I'm sure I haven't said that right. So
2: actually, this is a good, this is a really good example of what I was talking about in terms of, it's very difficult to, to identify for sure, for certain, who the individuals that Arnadan collected materials from were. And I've said in the book that this, this story is told by Marachin Buzat, and that's my, that's my, I think that's right. Uh, unfortunately, in the edited works the kind of full edited works they attribute the story to someone else because they they think that Mary Sheen Buzats is the same woman as another woman named Marianne de marie and having I think I've looked I spent a lot of time on this and I'm pretty sure they're different people and actually the differences in their lives are quite instructive um, so this is one of the chapters where I do you focus on an individual and there are other chapters where I tend to kind of more look at a broader picture of local culture and in this chapter I was particularly interested because Mary Sheen is an unusual storyteller it's um, the story she's telling. Um, she tells several stories about witchcraft, but she also tells several stories about werewolves, and that makes her quite unusual. Uh, there are not actually that many recorded werewolf stories from across the whole of France in this period, and there are very, very, very few which are kind of first hand, you know, memorat or um, kind of second hand uh, legend stories where, you know, friend of a friend style. Stories, which is what Marashine tells. She one of the stories she tells, and which I dwell on here, is actually a, a recollection from her childhood. Um, so that makes her, I think, a really interesting storyteller. But I wanted to kind of talk about her in the context of other werewolf stories. So I did, I tried to find all the werewolf stories I could from 19th century France and get a picture of like what werewolf stories in general are about. Um, and in the chapter, I talk about the fact that. Um in fact, you know, these stories aren't very violent, they're not at all like the kind of Hollywood image of um werewolf legends. They're not necessarily even very scary. They're something closer to kind of disgust, they're they're unsettling stories, and they very rarely feature wolves. So um yeah, they're not wolves. Even when people storytellers, I think Marie Shun she uses the Gascon words, you know, lugaru basically werewolf. But They are not wolves. They're dogs. They're very clearly in the story people who people who turn into dogs, and in other regions, you know, you quite often get people people who turn into other domestic animals. So cats is very common as well. Sheep, goats, pretty much any domestic animal. But they still they still use words like lugaru. They use the words werewolf, or you know, there are lots of different dialect terms, which some of which don't use the word wolf, but they're clearly all referring to a similar phenomena, and and it's not necessarily
1: wolves. What conclusions did you come to based on Mary Schoon's stories about wolves or dogs?
2: <laughs> so the kind of conclusion that I drove towards based on my identification of who she is. So she's a woman who grows up in a fairly traditional I should probably, you know, quote unquote traditional family. Um in the region, so a large family living in one of these large houses, where she would have shared the house with family members, extended family, and also um, perhaps other people who worked for the family and sharecroppers. Um, but she she makes a transition from that kind of in her youth to living. She when she dies, she's living on her own in a small house um, in the town, and that's after all of these changes have happened to the landscape. And one of the things that I'm interested in, and I talk about in the chapter, is that so she tells this story, and you know the point of the story ostensibly is to say, I had this incredible experience. I saw a werewolf when I was a child. Um, but actually, if you look at the details of what the story dwells on, it dwells on her extended family. It dwells on their household. It dwells on the boundaries of that kind of community. And my reading of the story is that the reason that it's so important to my machine, you know, it's a personal experience. I would, you know, I'd argue there's some kind of symbolic Work going on there around her own transition from living in that um, traditional family to living on her own as an older woman after all of these changes have happened to the region. And those traditional family forms are a lot less common. There's a lot of material about how community has become more kind of fragmented and isolated. So for me, you know, although we're drawn to the werewolf itself, this monster in the story, that she's using that bodily transformation to talk about, you know, the transformation of her own community.
1: The next chapter, chapter six, is one of the ones where you're focusing on a number of different informants. And this one's called Singing Love. And it's about attitudes to love and sex as demonstrated in the folklore. Um, needless to say, I thoroughly enjoyed this chapter.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's it's fun, isn't it? And I think the important thing is that the songs do seem to to embody a kind of feminine culture so that it's not, they aren't uniquely sung by women, but it does seem that there were more of them were sung by women than by men. So it's there's, they are definitely in a sense, um, they're definitely more focused on women's concerns than they are on men's concerns. And they're also, as I think we've already mentioned that they're incredibly bawdy. So there's a lot of kind of directly, even directly erotic material or, um, you know, references that are very clear references to, to sex, which I think, might surprise people who weren't familiar with the actual contents of those manuscript collections.
1: You start the chapter by talking about how many of the women dressed in dull colours traditionally, but often the songs describe their yearning to wear bright clothes, and you relate this to a yearning for sexual liberation, I think. Is that right? Yeah,
2: yeah, that's right. I mean, I think there's a kind of, so I, I I I would be careful about how much I believe this narrative, but there's definitely a kind of implied narrative in a lot of the songs that uh, sexual culture used to be freer, that women had more um, power to do what they wanted with their bodies, and that there has been a kind of tightening of um, sexual morality within living memory. And I think it's I think it is really hard to say whether that's something that really happened or whether it's it's a kind of narrative device that's common to a lot of the songs. Um, but it does map on to the singers a bit as well. So in the chapter, I talk about individual singers and how they how they adopt that trope to their own life circumstances. So women who you know who who did need to marry in order to preserve their family uh, farm, for instance, or women who did not conform to kind of local expectations about marriage and sexuality. And it's definitely yeah, it's linked to the clothing. So. There is. There seems to be a general pattern actually towards wearing more sober clothing, so darker clothing, black clothing, and there is a lot of material in the songs about women desiring to wear, yeah, the color red in particular, which is seen as a color of of youth and, and and marriage.
1: And you're talking about also how they like to sing about carefree love before or outside of marriage, and very few songs are about the honor of young women, which is. Interesting, because quite a lot of the folk songs I'm very familiar with are often about young women being defiled and left in desperate situations and, you know, coming to a tragic end because of that. But that seems to be a less of a focus here.
2: Yeah, I'd say it definitely is less of a focus. I mean, there are definitely examples and particularly in the following chapter, i I talk about a bit about um, one of the women who had more of an interest in that kind of tradition. But I mean, I think the other key thing to say about that is that there seems to be very little interest in Catholicism. Um, uh, And I think that definitely influences the kind of the tone of the songs as well. They are, they were the kind of songs that local priests did not like people to sing and you know, in general, local local priests therefore are hostile to singing and, and folk singing in particular.
1: So all this kind of borediness and expression about, you know, carefree love, it seems to be at odds with your conclusion then, which is that this was a period of repression of female sexuality in the Moorlands, which stands in marked contrast to what historians of sexuality have said about the increasing liberalisation of sex in France during this period. So I was curious as to how you came to that conclusion.
2: So, so this is this is the point about um, the fact that a lot of the singers sing nostalgically about body themes, and they sing about it in a way that um, that explicitly explains that they feel that that kind of sexual freedom is no longer um, is no longer the norm. So, there's even there's quite a lot um, of stuff about the kind of the threat of gossip. So you know, I think there's one singer in particular I dwell on in the chapter who seems to have a real kind of I don't know what the right word for it is, but she's she's very uh, concerned, shall we say, about the rise of gossip and the damage that it does to women's ability to kind of I think to, to circumvent some of the public conventions about the relationship between sex and marriage. Um, so yeah, I mean, so the so the conclusion I'm making here is. And I, you know, I do think it, you have to take it with a pinch of salt in the sense that these songs are all collected in the 18, you know, 1870 to 1914 period. And the women, it seems to me, are suggesting that their sexual freedoms have been curtailed within living memory. But that is, you know, I think we have to understand that as a performance. So I don't I wouldn't say that that it, it's a kind of failsafe guide to what actually happened to sexual relations over the period.
1: Yeah. Right. Interesting. And then we go from that subject to the subjects of silence and chastity. That's the title of Chapter 7, in which you move on to, a, again, a single informant by the name of Catherine Jeant. Who was she? Tell us why she was of interest to you. So I,
2: I became int- I first became interested in Catherine Jeant because she is one of Arna Dan's most prolific singers. So she's very, very important in the manuscript. She sings a lot of songs Um, uh, and he does this, he does this thing with, with her songs, which he does, he does do with other informants as well, but it's really obvious with Catherine's I think, which is that he, he records when she doesn't know a song and he will also, he will also ask, he uses, because he uses her as a kind of, he uses her to verify other people's songs. So if he has a version of a song from another woman, he might write next to it, Catherine doesn't know this one or or most often you just write Catherine non you know no from Catherine so I was really interested in what that kind of omission or silence or refusal to sing um whether there was any pattern to those to those kind of um those absences uh, so I you know yeah I, you know as with other chapters I focused in on who Catherine is and she's a um she's a youngish woman so I think she's in her 30s when she meets andan although I would have to go back to my notes to check that. But she's a seamstress. And that's a very specific role in rural society. And it is one, you know, there are implications of kind of um, seamstresses are associated with sexually licentious behavior because they go into lots of different people's houses and they touch people's bodies. And, you know, they have this relationship with cloth and the body, which is more intimate than um, most uh, respectable women would be expected to. Um, and they're also, they have seamstresses have this kind of cultural responsibility for passing on um, female practices to young girls. So there's a there's a kind of tight cultural knot of expectations around seamstresses and sexuality. Um, she's also someone who's recorded as having a physical disability um, in the census, uh, and that physical disability, the, the census suggests that she has a limp, and. Again, believe it or not, there's a kind of a very strong association between limping and sexuality in other materials that Arna Dan collected. So there are kind of there's a there's a very overt sexualization of women who limp in the materials. So that's the kind of I was that's that's what I know about Catherine from looking at these other sources. And then when you look at the songs she refuses to sing, it's all of the songs um, about sex, and she leaves out a lot of the body material that other singers um, put in. And so you've got this kind of fascinating picture of someone who there are clear cultural expectations that she's sexually available, sexually promiscuous, um, but she, as a singer, is deliberately, I would, I mean, deliberately or unconsciously, she rejects those kind of associations.
1: Yeah, it's fascinating. She's creating a kind of persona that is, seems to be rejecting all
2: of that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, and I suppose I wish that I'd put, more in that chapter, actually, about, I think I do discuss it, but, you know, if we're coming back to Arnadan had this, I think he does have a problematic relationship with his female singers. I don't know if he had relationships with with um, more than one of his female singers. Which it does seem likely. There are kind of hints in the manuscripts. So it, it may be that what we're seeing, particularly with this example, is her reaction against, you know, maybe this is her way of, trying to fend off unwanted advances from the folklorist, um, it, it's very hard to say.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah, no, but it's an interesting idea. And then in the final chapter, it's about exploited bodies. It's based on tales about foxes. And it begins with one uh, told by a man. Uh, it's actually a very sad little story about this this foxes, who is kind of, as you call him, a hapless anti-hero. This fox's attempts to, outwit or at least get something from the farmer and failing every time until eventually he and mrs fox leave and then drown
2: <laughs> yeah it's um it's a very dark story um and again i think if you know if you're only familiar with animal tales from some of the more um how shall i say some of the cleaned up versions that folklorists have published at different times then you you know you might not be aware of the the violence, uh, uh, yeah, and the depressing, very um, depressing outlook and endings to many of these stories. Of course, you know that's that's actually a tradition that has a lot in common with similar animal story traditions um, in America. I guess you know there are a lot of there's a lot of parallels there to be drawn with um, traditions collected about you know the violence of relationships in, in in animal tales in America. Right,
1: and you talk about these fox tales mostly in relation to the practice of sharecropping, can you tell us a little bit about what you were able to discern about the sharecroppers' attitudes to their situation from these tales that they were telling? So the way that sharecropping works is that the tenants of a farm
2: um, agree to give normally half of the product of that farm uh, to the landlord uh, and in exchange obviously the landlord is providing the farm and uh, the landlord will very often also provide some tools uh, they might even provide seed um there are various other kind of responsibilities that might fall to the landlord but it's a it's an extremely exploitative system and it's got a reputation amongst um agricultural theorists and historians it's for basically being the system that you use when you want to exploit a working population um, as effectively as possible, and especially where agricultural conditions are very difficult. And that is the case um, in, in these moorlands of Gascony where Arnadam is collecting folklore. Um, and so the consequences of, of this kind of system are that everything about your family life, if you like, is wrapped up in a struggle to kind of, um, to make it good to your landlord. So your whole family is going to have to pull together um, and in, in order to just provide the 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 things that you need to provide the landlord so it might might not just be half of your grain crop at the end of the year but it might also be a few of your chickens every now and then it might be a few sheep every now and then and things like this so it's a very it's clearly an emotionally very draining system for the people working in it and physically draining as well and and for me that's the way to understand this story the story is told by a man named Henri Vidal and he's he grows up in a kind of traditional family. I think some of his family members are artisans and some of them are listed as farmers or sharecroppers at various points and that's his background. But by the time he dies, um, which I think he dies after, I can't remember if he dies after Arnadan or or around the same time, but but by that point he's actually become a clerk um, and he's probably something closer to a friend of Arnadan than to you know a straightforward folklore informant. So In the chapter i suggest that he has kind of he's made this transition from being part of this exploited sharecropper class to being you know not well paid but a bit more independent better educated and he's kind of escaped from that system and so i the story i think is really interesting from that point of view because it really dwells on the violence and the and the problems of that sharecropping system so in the story The relationship between the fox and the farmer is very clearly similar to the relationship between a sharecropper and a landlord so the the farmer in the story has control over the share over the fox's house he offers him this this set where he and his wife can go and live but it turns out that the, the set is useless and it's not fit for purpose for living in and that's you know the kind of complaints you often get from sharecroppers they're being provided with unsuitable accommodation so they can't, they can't do their work. So they've got nowhere to live, um, and he, he also, they're fighting over food the whole time. Which again, that's um, key to the relationship between a sharecropper and a farmer. So I thought Henri was a really interesting case of like, here's someone who is actually he's so angry about the system. He, he does something in his own life, and he ends up not, you know, not working as a sharecropper anymore. And I think you have to set that kind of experience alongside other different experiences. So in the chapter, I compare him to other people who Anadan collected a lot of material from who, who remained sharecroppers for their whole lives. And in fact, were sharecroppers for the Anadan family. And so in that case, what you find, you don't, you don't see so much anger in the stories and you don't see, you know, you don't see that kind of, you see the same extremely violent relationship between the different animals in the stories. But those sharecroppers tend to tell stories about donkeys, and these donkeys are extremely faithful, and they'd never, um, they'd never disobey their master. And you know, even though they've been horribly abused, don't worry, they're still faithful. So I, you know, in the chapter, I'm making a fairly clear point. I think that is that's about people's individual life choices or what you know what they have to do to survive essentially
1: one of the things I should mention is that Arno Dan you point out is a photographer as well as a collector of narratives and songs can you tell us a little bit about the photographs that he took some of which actually feature in the book which is lovely
2: yes i mean i think to be honest uh, there'll be a large number of people who acquire the book uh, purely on the basis of the photographs there aren't that many of them but um it can be quite hard to get reproductions of Arnadan photographs um in fact but um so yeah he's actually in a sense he's one of the earlier i mean i don't want to say earliest and i'm not hugely well informed about it but he's a very early ethnographic photographer um you know he starts taking photographs of local people and um in particular costume you know he's very interested in clothing in the 1870s uh and uh over his life he does take hundreds of these huge glass plate photographs which are still in the museum in bordeaux and so the photographs yeah they are focused he does a lot of he does a lot of portraits of local people in traditional costume but he also does a huge number of photos of the landscape um and that Those photos of the landscape are really for him about kind of reclaiming a vision of the landscape before forestation. So again, in the same way as perhaps a lot of his folklore collecting was about reconstructing a a culture that he thought had been destroyed by forestation, he uses the photography to recreate this landscape that he feels is destroyed by forestation but they're you know they're absolutely beautiful photographs I'm, I'm sure you'll agree I mean that they they look even better when they're huge I've I've seen in a few restaurants in the region there they have reproduction large reproductions of Arnadan photographs and they're very panoramic you know he was fascinated by the horizon yeah they
1: seem to also just be technically very good I mean they could have been taken much more recently than when he was working yeah, he but he, he so he uses
2: some interesting techniques. Actually, he uh, he had he spent most of his money on photographic equipment. That's how he squ- that's really how he squanders the, the family money. Yeah, and um, and he he used some interesting techniques, including so. There's a really good photo um, of a veille, you know, a spinning bee where people are meant to be singing and telling stories, and he's got these women with their spindles, and it's a wonderful photo. But of course, he didn't have. Um, a flash or any way of taking photos indoors, so w- looking through the notes and some of the local photo- photographic historians worked this out, he arranged with these women to go to this abandoned building in the middle of the moorland, which had no roof, so he could take the photos during the day and there was loads of light coming down. The
1: one on the cover is extraordinary as well. The one on the cover of your book it is um Lou Jean and it shows a man on some stilts with a very long stick and he seems to be wearing some kind of, I don't know, tell me about this photograph.
2: Yeah. So, um, this is a, these are the really iconic, um, famous uh, photographs. I mean, I say famous, they're very famous um, in Southwestern France in particular. If you go, they're on the road signs, you know, they're the kind of, they represent, um, the region. So in, in, there's such the epitome of the kind of visual culture of the region because, In that period, in the 19th century, when um, sheep farming was still an important part of the local economy, the shepherds used stilts. Um, Now, and you know they look incredibly striking. They they stand on the stilts, uh, and apparently they can move very quickly. They could outrun um, early bicycles. There was a famous bicycle race between shepherds on stilts and bicycles in Paris, I think, in the 1890s. Um, But, yeah, Arnadan, obviously, he liked to photograph the shepherds on the stilts because he felt they were deeply traditional. And that photo on the cover is um, one of his most important informants and wearing a traditional sheepskin outfit and standing on the stilts on the moorlands.
1: Yeah, it's a very striking image. So um, as well as writing books, and I'm sure you're writing articles, you have a blog. And I noticed that one of the articles on your blog just after the publication of this book was about publication sadness. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I
2: mean I was uh <clears throat> I think I was saying to you before we started the interview that I did I felt like it took me a long time to get from um you know this was a PhD project to get from that PhD project to the final publication um I mean and I'm certainly not it was it was no one's fault but my own should we say but um uh the the blog post was particularly about that feeling that um because it was because I ended up spending so many years on it I wanted it to be everything. I wanted it to be perfect, and I wanted it to include everything I had to say about the topic. And of course, you know, no book can do that, it turns out. And there are lots of things about it now that if I had another go, I'm sure I would change. Um, it's that kind of, yeah, that sense of coming to terms with the real book as it goes out into the world is perhaps not the ideal book in my mind. Well,
1: I think you're very hard on yourself. I thought it was excellent fascinating.
2: That's very kind of you to say, thank you.
1: So what are you working on now? What's going to be your next publication, Sadness?
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah, good question. So at the moment, I have a big research project, which is about witchcraft uh, in France from 1790 to 1940. So um, the long 19th century, that period of witchcraft history, which um, people who aren't specialists don't tend to realise there's so much material. So I've got about a 1,000 cases. It covers the whole of France. Um it's a it if the down project was over ambitious, then this is getting ridiculous to be honest it's it's um so I've got kind of yeah a thousand cases, hundred and fifty criminal trial <laughs> dossiers that I've been working through um, and that's the kind of research base i've got a chapter out about it already i've got a few more things coming out on that material, but I'm also at the same time I'm working on a slightly new methodological direction so i've been collaborating with quite a few different groups on creative historical practice so with the witchcraft research i collaborated with a theater maker and a poet um and there is poetry out there based on it and there's a performance piece which we've had to postpone because of um coronavirus but um and i'm also i'm working on a creative non-fiction book based on witchcraft materials so those are the things I'm interested in at the moment.
1: Right. So you don't have very much on your plate then?
2: No, loads <laughs> of time.
1: <laughs> well, thank you very much for sparing the time to talk to me and um, to tell our listeners about your book, which again is Body and Tradition in 19th Century France, Félix Arnaudin and the Morlands of Gascony, 1870 to 1914. And you are William G. Pooley, or Will Pooley, as I call you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rachel. And just a reminder to our listeners that the New Books and Folklore podcast is one of many channels that you can find on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. (laughs)